fashion has become, in the minds of the consumers, a genre. But it also is an art form, and of all the art forms of animation, to me the most sacred and magical is stop motion, because it's the bond between an animator and a puppet. There's a sophistication of filmmaking when it's applied to stop motion, which is inherently handcrafted. You get a really powerful combination. Everything has to be built. You fully create a world, and that's really powerful. It helps you best tell the story. That was a clip from Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Welcome to Words and Pictures, the show about the narrative arts. I'm your host, S.W. Conser, and today we're talking about Pinocchio, more specifically the exhibition Crafting Pinocchio, which is running throughout the summer at the Portland Art Museum. The uh, stop-motion animated version of Pinocchio, co-directed by Guillermo del Toro and Mark Gustafson, took home the BAFTA, the Annie, the Golden Globe, and the Academy Award for Best Animated Feature Film of 2022. Joining us in the studio is the co-director of Pinocchio, Mark Gustafson. It's great to have you on Words and Pictures once Thank again. You. Thank you. It's great to be here. And we're also joined by the animation supervisor for Pinocchio. Brian Hansen has worked on stop-motion films in France, Denmark, England, and here in the Pacific Northwest. Brian, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, gentlemen, tell us about crafting Pinocchio. It opened earlier this year at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Yeah, it was. It's a very, very impressive show. It's it's incredible. I mean, for me personally, what was interesting about it was, you know, you do a movie and you build all these things, and they're very ephemeral. They they exist only to serve the film and the shots, and then they go away, and you never really imagine that you're going to see the the puppets and the sets again. So when I went to MoMA for the exhibit and saw it all put back together, it was very emotional. Uh, it was almost like a, a dog you had that had died. You, you never really expect to see it again. And then here it is. So I'm excited for people to see this. Now you uh, talk about puppets, and people still think of stop-motion animation as puppet animation. And I, I suppose at its heart, that's what it is, but it's really evolved over the years. Yeah. Brian? Yeah, it's like, I think the sort of digital technology has moved it forward in a, in a funny way because you've got much better you, you could see the puppet much clearer and you got you got instant playback so uh, for that reason the the the, anim the ability of animating the emotion and the characters in in a more sort of seamless way have it's just easier it's just possible now to actually have nearly complete control and uh, Mark, you're known for your adaptability, your wide range of animation techniques and expertise. You've crafted characters out of clay, out of wire, out of latex. You've worked with 3D printers and really intricate armatures. I mean, just in the past few years, even aside from what, you know, Mark, you just said about uh, computer-generated imagery, the ball socket joints, the paddles, the, the, the skeletons of these puppets have just gotten so intricate, so miniaturized. Yeah, it's all been refined over time. Uh, it's basically the same technique, but we're just uh, getting more and more uh, detailed in terms of how we create these puppets, and the, all the technologies are 
still serving the same end, though. I mean, we you said you talked about all the materials. We still use all those materials, but it's all in service of getting a puppet on the set that an animator can really manipulate and get a performance out of. Now, we won't be seeing, well, I guess we will be. We'll be seeing some performances. Part of the exhibition here in Portland is going to be screenings. But you said we've got um, puppets, we've got sets, we've got props. And is this going to be the same exhibition that was in New York, or has it evolved in some way? It's expanded. Yeah, it's, the Portland Art Museum have, have a bigger space, so we've been able to put another full-size church in there. And uh, and the boat that uh, Pinocchio and DiPetro ends up inside the whale is also going to be in the, in this exhibition, which it wasn't in Portland. Um, and another funny, you said that you never expect to see the sets and stuff after you've taken pictures of them and, and put them in the film. And I think the funny thing about the exhibition is that you see behind the camera, like truly behind the camera, you realize that is what looks to be old wood is just a piece of plywood that's painted to look like. And quite a lot of it is made out of polystyrene and just painted to look like rock. So I think that's part of the fun yeah. to go and, and have a look at that as well. Yeah, it really is a chance to appreciate the craft of the people who made all of this. Because when it goes into the film, it, it does its thing, but it goes by so quickly and you don't get a chance to really appreciate the work that's been put into it. So in the museum context, you're able to walk right up to these sets and characters and study them and really get a much better understanding of what it is to make one of these films. Now, you both worked on The Fantastic Mr. Fox, which was Wes Anderson directing, and Mark, you were the animation director on that. This is a very different film. Fantastic Mr. Fox had a stagey look, which fits with the kind of controlled environments you tend to see in Wes Anderson mm -hmm. films. A lot of the landscapes looked a bit like dioramas. So you had a few CGI, a few computer-generated effects, but it was mostly practical effects there. It was mostly, you know, the what you see is what you get. And Wes didn't mind sometimes the kind of staccato look. But uh, here in Pinocchio, talked about the church set, for example, but then there's a bomb exploding in the church. And that's marrying this incredible, intricate, practical set with the CGI effects of the explosion. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we really, part of what we tried to do, even on Pinocchio, was achieve as much in-camera as possible. We tried to have as much of it happening right there on the set as opposed to creating it digitally, particularly anything that was close to camera, because we, we wanted the language of all these textures and everything to be very genuine. And then when we did use digital elements, a lot of times we created an example in real life and then handed that over to the digital artist. Like it's something like fire. We created a look for fire where we animated it practically with our hands and then gave it to the digital artist. Uh, same with the explosions and that sort of thing. So, And I had, a, I had a real goal of keeping all the fire on the stop-motion animation side of it, but then the guys decided to blow the church up and, and it was full <laughs> blaze, and I was like, well, no, I can't, have, no, I can't do that. So, uh, and that has to go 
to the digital. I will say, though, even Fantastic Mr. Fox, as much as we say, oh, it's just, you know, this sort of little craft show that's happening in front of the camera, there's a lot of digital effects and stuff to polish things or remove rigs or expand sets. So almost every single shot in that film was touched digitally in some way. And the same is true uh, of Pinocchio. And that's and one of the reasons is because the scope of the film is so big. Uh, you know, we had these sets and we couldn't get the skies far enough away to light them and without just completely filling our stages instantly. And, you know, we would have to have, I think at one point we had 60 units shooting at the same time. So it really is a, a practical choice to go, no, we're going to just put this sky in later, you know, because you can't get the lights far enough away and that sort of thing. So, But it was important that it all be of a piece. Brian, you started out in Denmark. And is this right? You trained as a chef before detouring into animation? That is true. Yeah. Um, so I didn't grow up in Portland and didn't have the stop motion right at my fingertips as, uh, as Mark had. So I had to do a little bit of a detour to finally be grown up enough that I, I realized that I should try out this film business. And it probably took me a little bit longer than I planned because I think I signed up for the chefing business thinking that oh, I'm just going to do this for a bit and then I'm going to move over soon. But then the, the being in the kitchen was quite exciting. So I think I st stuck around for longer than I imagined when I first started out. But then when I was like 24, I was like, oh, no, now I need to try out the other thing. But there's a lot of things about cooking that's probably, probably yeah. analogous to animation. Yeah, yeah. Weirdly. Not, yeah, yeah. No, exactly. You you create this like piece of art on the plate, and then you're done with it. and it Looks great, and then you send it out the door. But then you need to create another piece of art, exactly the same with the same high standards and qualities. So I think that's there's a lot of things you do in animation because you make these performances, and then the next day you have to turn up and make another brilliant performance. Uh, so it's 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 about and it becomes a little bit about can I do it again just as great as I did last week or yesterday, uh, so that becomes a bit of a challenge as well. And this is going back to when we're talking about the puppets. Uh, what you really have is multiple puppets. You have a dozen or more Pinocchios, and they had to look essentially identical. So you have rapid prototyping, a sort of 3D printing, but then you have all these replacement faces, replacement limbs. It's, it's actually even more complicated than that. Uh, we had about 32 Pinocchios. Is that right, Brian? Mm -hmm. yeah. But, you know, Pinocchio changes over time. So there's different looks to him in different parts of the film, and all of that has to be tracked, you know? Like, whoa, he... He has he's missing a limb here or it's been changed out for a different limb or or whatever it is and it's the same with the characters like uh, Geppetto as well you know he's not always in one there's a young Geppetto and there's an old Geppetto and you know Geppetto with a broken leg a, yeah Geppetto with a with a, one of his suspenders off and you know so so he goes through because he, he go when he goes into the whale he really gets messed up so at that point, he's like had dirty face as well. So once you have a dirty face, 
Geppetto, you can't use him back in the wood shop. And we're shooting on 60 stages at the same time. So there's like, what is that? Five or six Geppetto wood shops. And then there's, there's only one boat. Uh, quite a lot of stuff is happening in the church. So we had two and a half church. Yeah, so so it becomes yeah quite complex, uh, sort of big giant puzzles. You can, you can imagine what it is trying to track all these assets. Like there's hundreds of thousands of pieces, literally. And you have to kind of know where everything is and when it needs to be available in order to keep this giant machine kind of moving forward. Because what you don't want is animators just sitting and waiting. You know, oh, I haven't got a puppet. The set isn't ready. The whatever. I mean, it's unavoidable. It happens. But the more you can keep animators animating, the more efficient the production is, obviously. You're listening to Words and Pictures. I'm your host, S.W. Conser, and today we're talking about Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Our guests are Mark Gustafson, co-director of Pinocchio, along with Brian Hansen, animation supervisor. Now, before you even built one set or one puppet, Mark, you and Guillermo del Toro were talking about this film for, you said, what, 12, 14 years? Is that yeah, right? about... Um, I think I first joined back in like 2011 or something like that. And, uh, yeah, we did some preliminary work on it and then it, you know, it, as these things do in Hollywood, it just went away for various reasons. Um, we would go out to pitch it and we would go into all these studios and the door is always open for Guillermo. So you'd go in and you would meet with the top people at the studios and, and the pitch would happen, and you'd say, yes, well, it's Pinocchio. Everybody knows the story, but we're going to do this sort of very different take on it. And, and then you can see they're excited about that. You see, the, you see it in their eyes, and then, and then you say, and it takes place in Italy during the rise of fascism. <laughs> and you just you, you see the blank stare. Coming. And then Pinocchio <laughs> dies. Yeah. yeah. Every, in fact, everybody dies. Everybody Spoiler dies. alert. And they're like, oh, okay, great. Um, you know, can we validate your parking? <laughs> and then you're, you don't hear from them for years. And then, thank goodness, Netflix came along and, you know, Ted Sarandos just said yes, right in the room. Just said immediately, yes, let's do it. And then they left us alone. They really left us alone, and they let us make the movie we wanted to make, which was great. Well, going back to you know the original Pinocchio story, uh, when Nancy Beeman was on the show, she talked about uh, Carla Collodi, the original author of Pinocchio, and also Felix Salton, the author of Bambi. Both Collodi and Salton started out as journalists, so their, their stories were very episodic. They tended to meander, repeat mm -hmm. themselves, and occasionally go just completely off the rails you know so um so in the middle of the 19th century italy was just being unified as a country collodi was politically active mm -hmm. and he started a couple of satirical newspapers uh but he turned to children's literature because he was passionate about the value of education and virtually every calamity that happens in the original pinocchio story is the result of pinocchio avoiding his schooling yeah, yeah, and when we first thought about making this film, we thought, well, uh, why? Why would you make this again, you know? 
But then we recognize that this conceit of if you're obedient and a good boy, you'll become a real boy was something we weren't that interested in. And we thought, what is the virtue of, of a righteous disobedience? What is it like if this character questions authority, asks why? And that was one of the reasons to place him in this sort of uh, uh, regime, you know, fascist regime, mm-hmm. where everyone is expected to walk in lockstep. And we said, no, Pinocchio is going to be that one character. He's going to be less of a puppet than anyone else in the film, even though he's a puppet. And, and we also decided that we were going to tell the story a little bit more from Geppetto's point of view. We wanted to understand why he made Pinocchio and why he, and it, and his journey really is he asked for a miracle because he's lost his son. And we, we show that. So you understand it, not just intellectually, but emotionally. His flesh and blood son. Yes. His real son, he loses him. And you, you feel that emotion along with him. It's not just an idea. And then when Pinocchio comes along, which he's sort of basically prayed for a miracle, he doesn't recognize it as a miracle because Pinocchio is so different. But he is this blessing in his life. And so Geppetto's whole arc is to understand that, come to understand that he he can love this thing. You know, it's right there. It's just not in the form that he was expecting it. And I think that's something we can all sort of maybe learn a little something from. Yeah, well, throughout this version of Pinocchio, we keep seeing uh, more and more authoritarian slogans. Uh, Credere, obedere, combatere, Italian for believe, obey, fight. And, well, like you said, education, true education, promotes critical thinking, which is threatening to the propagandists. It's not dogma, (laughs) you know. It's an idea. Ideas are good. Dogma, mm, not so good. And this is Del Toro coming back to fascist Europe. Uh, Both of his features, Pan's Labyrinth and The Devil's Backbone, took place during the Spanish Civil War of the 1930s when the fascist Franco regime was taking over Spain. Yeah, he has a thing about fascism. (laughs) (laughs) He does not like it. No, he doesn't like it. He shows it. From its all its bad sides all the time, and he and he consistently like there's another funny thing that happens in Pinocchio is like lots of lots of the shots are exact replica of of shots in his other films. You know, with the bomb drops, there's like the crucifix are there as a statement. So yeah, he reuses a lot of his what he thought worked really well in his other stuff, he, he takes it in and, and reuses it in, in new stuff as well, which is quite interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, we're seeing authoritarianism taking root across Europe again, from Hungary to Poland to Turkey to Russia, and mm-hmm. I, 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 I don't know. This maybe is, a little bit here too, maybe. Maybe, <laughs> uh, maybe we have to worry about it on this side of the pond. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think we, you have to remain vigilant. Because this folk wisdom starts to take root and uh, people are ready to surrender their, uh, their freedoms when they find a, um, a personality that they can get behind. You know, this film is about fathers. Mm-hmm. And I think that, for instance, in Italy, 
that regime with Mussolini was the, a very corrosive example of a paternal relationship. It was horrible. He was a big father figure. He ruled the country like, like a really mean dad. Well, I mean, you're talking about this, this version of Pinocchio being fairly dark, but the 1940 Disney version of Pinocchio could also get very dark. Audiences thought so at the time, and I think the Disney studio kind of dialed back after that. Yeah, yeah, did, yeah it's funny how this like, the stop motion always has this sort of like weird story told about them being dark, because like, you know, all the Disney characters also dying at all at, at times in the old Disney Bambi's films. mom. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so who's over that? gruesome. <laughs> so, uh, just because characters are dying, I don't think you can deem it dark for that reason, because, you know, it's a part of, it's part of life. I think and dark, uh, some of dark comes with nihilism, you know. If you feel for these characters, and you're along on the journey, and their loss has meaning then I think that there's a kind of <laughs> strange joy in that because it's the truth, you know, and, and that's the thing that you compare everything to when you're thinking about story and character is the truth. Like, does this actually ring true or are we doing this because it's convenient for the story? So we, you always come back to character. And you mentioned color earlier. In both the Disney version of Pinocchio and the current version, color is often a character all its own. It's setting the mood for every scene. It's very intricately thought out. Yeah, we did a whole mood board for the film to sort of a color script. And we, for instance, we reserved the color blue for the most part for the underworld. There's not a lot of blue in the rest of the film. So you, you feel it when you go there. It's like, oh, this place is different. I wonder why. Well, it, it really has a, a blue kind of palette to it. And then we reserved red for fascism. And so as fascism is rising over the course of the film, we introduce more elements of red throughout. So this was Del Toro's first major foray into stop-motion animation, but he's been fascinated throughout his film career with otherworldly creatures. Uh, that's for sure, and, and I think that the, um, the creatures that are in this film are just pure Guillermo. I mean, you, you wouldn't mistake them for creatures that anyone else would create. You know, the, the, the wings with the, with the eyes in them. And those well, we're are... talking about the, not the fairy, there's a death character, yeah. and there's a, is it the forest sprite, is that right? The wood sprite. Wood sprite. Yeah. Um, yeah, and they're sisters. So one of them is essentially life, and the other is death. So that's why they were voiced by the same character, Tilda Swinton, or and they actress, this, I should say. They have this sort of Old Testament look to them, mm -hmm. with the, the wings and the eyes everywhere. Yeah, that's something that Guillermo is fascinated with. And some of that is, you know, from the Mexican culture. He's just sort of borrowing these, these images. And it was, it was really interesting. You, you take a character like Life, and she's, she's like the wood sprite. She brings Pinocchio to life. 
But she does it very sort of offhandedly. It's like she doesn't really think about the consequences. And she's like, okay, well, well, let's do this thing. You're alive. And then that creates these ripples of problems. When you get to death, the other character, she's much more thoughtful. And she wants to talk to Pinocchio about his situation and really make him think about his decisions. So in our film, life is 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 a little bit more irresponsible than death. And uh, people who take their kids to go see this version of Pinocchio might say, what's, what's with the dead rabbits? Well, they appeared in the original Colodi story. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, like the... The original book is so, there's so many things that no one film could hold all of it. It's, it's, it goes all over the place. Mm. Uh, and the sort of episodic, you talked about how it was written for a newspaper first. It's really very apparent when you read the book because it's just like little chunks of the story. And then in the middle, I think he ended the first section of the episodes with Pinocchio actually hanging from the tree, dead. But then it was so popular that people wanted more. Uh, so he had to like extend his vision for Pinocchio. It was like bringing um, Sherlock Holmes back from the fall from the, uh, the waterfalls. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. right, yeah. And uh, Mark, one of the reasons why I think, and you can let me know if I'm wrong, but I get the sense that one of the reasons why you and Guillermo del Toro clicked was that so many of the strange characters in his other feature films and the, the Shape of Water, Pan's Labyrinth, Hellboy, these strange creatures, they aren't just computer generated. Almost always they're crafted from real world materials. They have that give and take of real world materials. The term of art here is practical effects. That's right. Yeah, he's a big proponent of practical effects. And you know, as far as my involvement, I didn't even know he knew who I was when I got the phone call from him. But apparently he was very familiar with my work, and he, he's, he's kind of amazing memory. And he could go through my entire catalog of work, stuff that I forgot I had done. And he would say, oh, yeah, remember that thing you did, this and this? I'm like, really? I did that? And he goes, yeah, you did that. <laughs> he's going to give you your bio. <clears throat> That's right. Yeah. And it's, it's amazing working with him because, like, he would daily mention 10 new things that I had to. It was quite uh, good that we were working, you know, remotely and it was during the pandemic, so you were sitting in front of your computer. You could look up whatever new thing he brought up as a reference, which I didn't know. So you could Google it. Every time something new came up, you could Google it and find out what he was talking about. So you didn't because, seem like an idiot when yeah, you responded. Yeah, like an idiot. <laughs> Because he, he has read everything, he's seen everything. I don't even understand how he could have seen all the films he have seen. It's like such a wild library of uh, references. This project was obviously a group effort in the fullest sense. And one of the things that sets Guillermo del Toro apart as a director, as a filmmaker, is the care he takes to credit everyone involved in the project. Well, it's because he feels it. He understands a lot. Of, he started out as a, a mold maker and, you know, he did stop motion animation as a kid. So uh, he understands, again, what all of these people are doing and going through. So he really appreciates the art and the craft of it uh, when he 
came to the studio, he would pick up some little prop or something, and he would just be almost in tears. He would say, this is it. This is, this is the film. You know, and that really makes uh, uh, the person who, who built that uh, feel real pride. And that ripples down, you know, out through the whole project. Yeah, and that's what the MoMA exhibition and now the PAM exhibition is all about. It's showing all those little things that goes into building this one thing. Let's play another clip from Pinocchio. We propose the idea that animators are not animators that execute, but actors that animate. We urge them to think through the puppet, to not do an action, to avoid pantomime, and to give us real acting. We tried to find animators who were compatible with certain characters, and as people start shooting, you find them. You say, oh, that person's really got Pinocchio down. That's our Pinocchio. You're listening to Words and Pictures. I'm your host, S.W. Conser, and today we're talking about Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Our guests are Mark Gustafson, co-director of Pinocchio, along with Brian Hansen, animation supervisor. And Mark and Brian will be at various events throughout the run of the Crafting Pinocchio exhibition at the Portland Art Museum. I was going to mention one of the main players in... Pinocchio, this version, is the cinematographer, Frank Passingham. Brilliant. Yes. He's a brilliant guy. And he's de- he has a lot of experience in stop motion. You know, he, you can look at his resume. <laughs> it's, it's very impressive. But yeah, he did things like he has these moving gobos, which are these filters that are in front of the lights. And we would program them so that they would just drift slowly during the shot, frame by frame. And... W- he would use so that this. That would change the color. That would change the color and change shadows very, very subtly. And where you see it most, I think, or feel it, I should say, because you don't really see it, is on big landscapes. Because in a miniature world, typically the light is sort of dead, it's not moving. And in the real world, when you walk outside and you look, you may not be aware of it, but, you know, the clouds are going and the, the light's shifting. And so it, it, there's something happening in the environment at a very subtle level. And he brought that to the film so that you feel it more than see it. But the world is alive. I understand that Frank Passingham was saying to everybody, watch The Godfather. The Godfather was his go-to movie for cinematography. Yeah, that's right. He, he had a lot of color reference and mood reference from that film and other things as well. In Sino Man yeah. with Polly Shore? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, this was part of it, is that so many of the people who came aboard this crew that were brought aboard were not just animation people. There was an issue of, let's bring the wider world of, of film, a of feature film, into this world of Pinocchio. Yeah, well, we Guillermo really wanted to us to approach this as you would approach a live action film. So that, that influenced a lot of our decisions and we knew that right from the beginning and it, it complicates things, but you know, in a, in a pretty interesting way, it also sort of limits some of the choices that you can make, which I think is a good thing. You know, if you, you don't want to be able to do absolutely everything. 
And, you know, just speaking of the crew, you know, we curated our crew very, very carefully because we've been through this before and we knew that this was going to be our family. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to spend years with these people and we wanted to spend it with people that we love and respect and that we wanted to be around. And I think spending that time to do that very carefully really paid off because we all really cherished one another and still do. You know, everybody really was sad when this was over. And, you know, it went on for years. Usually, you know, people are at one another's throats at the end of something like this. But I think we, uh, we got on quite well. And the pandemic definitely changed the schedule. It did. Yes. That, you know, like everybody else, you know, we had to adjust and figure out and get on our feet. But I think we did it pretty quickly. Yeah. We were one of the fastest productions to get back up and, and actually shooting. We, we just started. There was like, we had four animators going on sets and then everybody's running out the door. But um, most of the like scenic people and the people are building the props and, and to a certain extent the people are doing the costume stuff carried on doing all those things in their basement and garages because and, Portland is such a great place that everybody has a little workshop in their upstairs, upstairs, downstairs kind of place. Even animation tests Even happened. animation tests. We had like, we, we moved a few sets back home to people who had room for it and, and carried on some of the animation tests as well. So we sort of carried on working on the film, even though from home. And then later on, when we knew more about how the pandemic worked, we started coming into the studio in a safe way and props would be dropped off at a shelf and stay there for like 24 hours. And then somebody else came and picked it up for paint and stuff. So there was a whole giant organization behind that and getting everybody carrying on working and and doing stuff. Because I think it was important to keep on working you know it's like because just sitting waiting for the uh, covid to get you would be a terrible time yeah. to spend bad for morale bad for morale <laughs> so like the fact that people could keep on working on their uh, in their jobs were great and and netflix was also really great that paid everybody to like and that was everybody even stage crew that couldn't do any work was paid through the four, several six months. months we yeah. were home you know, I will say this with the pandemic, it was it was actually slightly useful not to be too <laughs> for from a story point of view, because it allowed us we had to open up the schedule and it allowed us to really work on the animatic, on the cut, on the story in more detail without the production right on top of us, because normally, you know, you're. You, you've got to shoot. We've got to start here. And, well, we haven't quite ironed everything out. Well, we were, we were able to sort of iron things out without, you know, I didn't have to rush off to launch a bunch of shots or talk to animators or designers. I could focus on the story. And the animatic is sort of a, a moving storyboard, a storyboard on film, so you can get the rhythm exactly. of the piece. Yeah, it allows you to see the film before you shoot it. Yeah, you work on animatic from day one to almost the last day. It just goes on and on because you're always finessing. Another sort of tie-in between live-action film and and this film is that Guillermo del Toro said he was looking for subtle poses and facial expressions rather than the broad gestures that so many people associate with puppetry. 
Yeah, he says he wanted to portray characters as they were in the real world. So he wanted to put a lot of like mistakes into the into the film as well. If you're reaching out for a, a, a pin on the table, you might not get it in the first go. It might roll away from you, and then you move your hand forward and you take it. And also, when you pick up, quite often in animation, for ease, uh, things are lined up. So if I'm going to reach uh, forward and take a cup, the cup is placed right in within reach of my hand, where Guillermo would always ask us to place the cup across the table, so I would have to like move my body and potentially the chair a little bit to get the cup. And that's sort of built into the film from the very beginning. Yeah, and then even beyond that, just the performances themselves, we were looking for something that was much more... Uh, subtle and sophisticated, you know, and looking for and not being afraid of the quiet moments, the reaction shots. So there are scenes where there is no dialogue, you know, and you have to just play it out on the faces and and mostly in the eyes of the characters. You 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 see it there. Yeah, there's in this uh, book that's been put out about the movie. You can read about the eight commandments of Pinocchio animation, and the first few are, as you mentioned, animate silence, animate mistakes, animate throwaway physical truth. That's an interesting one. Don't always make eye contact. That's another one. Exactly. I think that's that's a really important one because in real life, you don't stare into people's eyes when you talk to them. You always glance away. Depend, it, you know, It's a sign of confidence or dominance or, you know, or weakness. And it's another tool that you use in a performance. What is, could you help explain animate throwaway physical truth? (laughs) 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 So, uh, Guillermo really, uh, every time we talk about this, he talks about the time where Gepetto is gone to look for Pinocchio and he turns up at the uh, circus site, but the circus is gone and there's only a balloon floating around. And he gets entangled in this balloon and sort of have a sort of a internal and external fight with the balloon for a second. And it and it doesn't it doesn't really bring the story forward. And there's a lot of sort of improvisation that's happening on the spot while you're animating. Because remember, you when you're animating stop motion, you're animating from frame one to frame two hundred and fifty. So there's a there's a little bit of relying on the animator's intuitive performance skills. So those things are, are, are things that happens to the character that doesn't necessarily bring the story forward, other than maybe give you another emotional clue about what state the characters are in. Yeah, because I think if if you're always looking at every moment to simply move the story forward. You're going to be you're going to be missing out. You're going to be basically solving a math problem and not making a movie, because a, a, a movie isn't about connecting every single dot. Guillermo likes to say when he talks about continuity, he says the only continuity that matters is emotional continuity. That's the one that matters to the audience. So that's what you really have to track. Well, the movie Pinocchio, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, impressed enough people. I mean, across the board, all the awards for Best Animated Feature. 
In the past, the Academy Award nominations for animation have tended to avoid adult themes. And in fact, at the 2022 Oscar ceremonies, uh, actress Lily James, she came on stage as a Disney princess, and she told the audience that animated films are formative experiences as kids who watch them. Yeah, that's pretty frustrating. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's just another medium to tell stories, and they can tell any kind of stories. Nothing against kids' films. They're great. We, we need them. They're some fantastic kids' films. We didn't necessarily want to make a film for kids. Mm -hmm. we, we were making this film for ourselves. And I think that you can feel that. You know, we're not pandering at all. There was never a discussion about, oh, I think, you know, the audience needs to see a skateboard here, or, you know, whatever it is. We made choices based on what was best for the characters and the story that we wanted to tell. And if that meant a character has to die or there has to be something unpleasant, that stuff has to live in the film as well in order to feel the joy you know, that you feel when something wonderful happens, when, when characters really connect. But it has to be in the context of, of darkness. Year after year, there are Academy members who vote for the best animated feature category without watching a single nominated film. And you'll hear actual quotes from them like, I just voted for the movie my grandkids liked. Yeah, the awards thing is a whole different animal. There's, there are giant campaigns that happen going after these awards, and they'll, you know, the studios will spend immense amounts of money pursuing the Academy members and schmoozing and, you know, trying to entertain them and trying to get them to screenings just to get their votes. Um, that's a whole other thing. I spent five months wandering the earth. <laughs> meeting people and trying to convince them that Pinocchio was, you know, the best thing since sliced bread. Which, which was, like, actually quite nice. Yeah, you know, the, because the, I believed it. Yeah, no, but also they believed it as well. I've, I've never yeah. been with something where everybody who came out of these screening rooms was so excited. They was, like, generally so excited about it, uh, which I you know, so I think that that's part of also why it won so many prizes because it is a good film and it and yeah. it really captures people and even like what I'm thinking was surprising is that in LA they invite like film people people who who knows you know and at at a time I was standing at a table after it came out of screening and we had the puppets in front of us and I was talking to this like uh, you know quite famous filmmaker and for four minutes and then suddenly it dawned on them that these were the puppets that were in the film. And they just came out of screening and they know they were in films. So they should have known. But it's just like they believed so much in the puppet they didn't realize they were just nine inches tall. Yeah. Uh, after one of these screenings, I was approached by, of all people, Terry Gilliam. And he came up to me and he was like, how, how did you do it? How did you do it? He was just like, he peppered me with questions for probably 20 minutes about the, the puppets and what we did. He was just, he said, this is the third time I've seen it on the big screen, and I still can't quite figure it out. And that was Terry Gilliam. I was like one of my heroes in cinema. So you brought ambassadors with you. 
Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was useful for us on our tour was we had a Geppetto and, a, and we had a Pinocchio. And you really saw who the stars were when you pulled those things out and set them out. People's eyes just lit up. Yeah, I've been at these panels and stuff. I quite often took, so we had them standing up there and there was like a whole cinema of people and I took Pinocchio and then I just walked down in the middle of the, at the end of it when people were sort of leaving, I was to walk down in the middle and just like handed Pinocchio around to people and people were like going berserk, not quite Beatles berserk, but it was like <laughs> close too, you know, they were like quite excited to see the little guy. You're listening to Words and Pictures. I'm your host, S.W. Conser, and today we're talking about Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Our guests are Mark Gustafson, co-director of Pinocchio, along with Brian Hansen, animation supervisor. Brian, how do you like being in Portland? We've really developed this reputation now for stop motion. There's Leica Animation, there's Bent Image Lab, House Special, now Shadow Machine. Yeah, so I came over here to work at Leica, which is, you know, like with Will Winton, you know, a big part of why uh, we made Pinocchio here, because there was already all this amazing talent here. And I did never expect to stay this long. I've been here for 10 years now, but the project just keeps on coming up and to me. So it keeps me here. And Shadow Machine is uh, working on new stuff and you know, there's a new Guillermo del Toro film in the horizon as well, so I think I might stick around for a little bit longer. One of the things you hear about the people who work in stop motion is that they're nomads. They move from project to project, whether it's here on the West Coast, in Toronto, Canada, Paris, France, Bristol and Manchester in England. Yeah, it's been an absolute joy traveling around and working in different places on different films quite often with the same crew because as you say people are moving around it's like a traveling circus uh, sometimes there's like different clowns on the teams you know literally <laughs> <laughs> and, and 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 then you don't see them for two seasons and then suddenly they show up on this in a uh, little car <laughs> and they all pile a, out yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's been really great and uh, right now I'm working with people who have that was on my first job 25 years ago or 20 years ago, depending who's counting. So that's been absolute great. And, and now I landed here in Portland and I've, I've been here for 10 years, as I said, which is also nice because you don't have to put everything in a suitcase and move to the new town and set up, you know, buy new pots and pans and stuff. So, um, yeah, it's good both ways. And We're serious about pots and pans in Portland. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It is gratifying to see that that Portland has become this hub, coming from that seed of of Will Vinton Studios so many years ago, and then morphing into Leica, which is sort of a powerhouse. Yeah, and now with uh, Shadow Machine here, this is the place to be for stop motion. And thanks to Guillermo del Toro, there is a studio, a stop-motion studio in his hometown of Guadalajara called uh, Taller del Chucho, or Taller del Chucho. I'm not exactly sure of the pronunciation, but it translates as Mongrel's Workshop. Yeah, he's a real patron of the arts, uh, and he has a soft spot for stop-motion, and he loves young artists and, and trying to nurture them and help them along with their projects, and he really would like to see this 
industry grow in his hometown. So he's he's definitely giving back and uh, lending his name and his resources to creating an opportunity uh, for a very talented pool of people in Guadalajara. I mean, we worked with that team. They did the Black Rabbit sequence. We sort of separated that off because it seemed like it was different enough than the rest of the film. And it was something they could just own and have and do. And they did a fantastic job. It's just beautiful. And it seems to fit the, the psyche the, the Mexican mind, this sort of darkness. It's all about death, but not being that afraid of it, you know, the way we are here. Your mortality is, is important. It's to be celebrated. And that's what we did in Pinocchio as well. We said, yeah, you're going to die. We're all going to die. But what's important is all these connections that we make in the meantime, you know, and that we, we take advantage of life. And another crew that you worked with was over in, outside of Manchester, that was uh, Georgina Haynes' hometown team, McKinnon and Saunders. Yeah, they've been involved in nearly everything like made. Like they've even been building puppets for Leica as well in busy times where the puppet crew at Leica couldn't do all the things. So they've been building puppets for all stop motion that I've worked on, I think, apart from maybe the French one. And they're true masters. They're so dedicated to create puppets that works really well. And, and they're lovely people. Yeah, and they're lovely people as well. Pinocchio is a very complicated piece of engineering, and Richard Pickerskill did an amazing job of putting all the parts together so they actually could move. Because um, a puppet would normally have clothes to hide joints, but because Pinocchio is naked, there's no place to hide, so all the, all the physical things that you see are really sort of like tiny little joints that can move all over the place, like his elbows can go up, his shoulders can go up and forward and backwards, and it's sort of like put into this very tiny skeleton, which is very impressive. Yes, this version of Pinocchio is not clothed, He's also nearly monochromatic. He's wooden. So it's interesting that this design for both Pinocchio and the cricket, they don't use their eyes quite so much. They use poses and gestures more. Yeah, it's quite amazing that um, I think I was like three weeks into the process when I realized, oh, God, he doesn't have any eyeballs. How is that going to work? Talking about the cricket here. Yeah, no, I'm talking about Pinocchio. Oh, Pinocchio. Pinocchio doesn't have any eyeballs. He just have holes for ah. eyes. How is that going to work? And I look back at, at other stuff that didn't have eyes, uh, like like pupils, and I got calmer again because there's actually quite a lot of characters that doesn't have pupils that works really well. And I think that is maybe also part of Pinocchio's success because you don't deliver, like, a complete finished characters. There's so much room for your own interpretation of him. So you invent half of him, really, because he's quite sort of plain and there's not many signs in his face about what kind of mood he's in. So I think as an audience, you project your own things onto him and that, and then therefore he becomes perfect. Yeah, and the fact that he was unfinished and naked, that was important to us. That was who he was. That's how he was going to go out into the world. 
this nudity is sort of shocking to us, you know, but he doesn't care, you know, he's just, he's like a little kid. He's just like, he's going to rush out there. And, and he was carved by a guy who was drunk at the time. So it was, you know, he's he's very flawed. So the whole thing starts with Gimmel seeing Chris Grimley's rendition mm-hmm. of his Pinocchio and, and Guillermo becomes instantly curious and asks him like two questions like why is he why is he so unfinished why does he have nails in his back and Chris Grimley says oh well Geppetto made him when he was drunk and Guillermo goes like why why was Geppetto drunk oh because he's lost his son and then I, th- I believe that that's where Guillermo was like oh there might be a story here that's worth telling again yeah this is Gris Grimley, the character designer. Well, he's an illustrator. An illustrator. And uh, he does do comic books and stories and stuff, yeah. Yeah. But he just instinctively had this backstory for Pinocchio. Well, that was the the key, as Brian was saying. Like, when Guillermo saw that Pinocchio, which is... We, we obviously changed the design a bit. We had to. You know, we, we yeah. refined it and we made it work in three dimensions and we made it work for us animating. But essentially, it is kind of that image that Grizz created. And it was like, yep, that's it. And then everything spun out from there. And Mark, I think your animation school was basically just being at Will Vinton for the most part. That's right. Um, Brian you would know that at animation school, one of the exercises they make students do is animate a flower sack. And how do you animate a flower sack? But if you are following the instruction, you can make a flower sack look joyous or depressed or frightened without any facial expressions, without any limbs. Yeah. I actually uh, got inspired by those like 2D because normally it happens in 2D when I was in animation school and made a little plasticine sack that I was jumping around. Uh, So yeah, I I did the same thing. My sack had little, you know how the sacks are sort of closed with strings at the top? So it had little ears. So I used the ears to sort of uh, display emotions. And then in the end, he split so the corn was running out of him. So he was very sad at the end. Oh, Oh. wow. Tragic. It's a tragic story. I think what Brian said earlier is exactly right. You know, this notion that when you don't animate everything to within an inch of its life, you make the audience lean in and fill in the gaps. And that's really important because to do it at the right time and to know when to pull back. Because I think a film is a conversation between the audience and the film itself. And that makes the audience have to engage more. You're not just feeding it all to them. And and then it makes more it's more powerful. It's more emotional. That's all storytelling in a way, even in books and oral storytelling. It's giving the audience just enough yeah. that they can discover right. something on their own. So what you leave out is equally as important as what you put in. Well, Guillermo del Toro will be in town during part of the run of the exhibition. It's uh, Crafting Pinocchio runs from the 10th of June to the 17th of September. And both of you will be in attendance at various times, Mm -hmm. various events. Uh, People will have to go on the Portland Art Museum website to look for those. Yeah, I'm very excited for people to see this. 
Yeah, we're going to be uh, like the crew who made the Pinocchio is going to be sort of dotted out to the exhibition when the exhibition runs on Saturdays and Sundays and doing talks and and generally just showing how it's done. So that's exciting. You've been listening to Words and Pictures. I'm your host, S.W. Concer, and we've been talking today about Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Our guests are Mark Gustafson, co-director of Pinocchio, along with Brian Hansen, animation supervisor. Mark, Brian, it's been great to have you on the show today. Thank you. And if our listeners would like to find out more about Pinocchio or the Crafting Pinocchio exhibition at the Portland Art Museum, where would they look? In, in, into their own hearts. <laughs> uh, I guess you go to the, uh, to the website. Art Museum's website. And, yeah. uh, look up, there's lots of events spread over the time of running of the exhibition. So go there and have a look and uh, see if you can find something you like. Yeah, maybe we will uh, run into you there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I hope so. I believe you can get there by pam.org. Well, we hope that everybody has been enjoying our special programming for KBOO's Spring Membership Drive. Before we go, I'd like to remind all of our listeners that this community radio station needs your support. To become a member of KBOO or to arrange for a donation of any size, please visit kboo.fm give. You can also text KBOO to 44321. Or if you prefer, you can mail a contribution to the station at 20 Southeast 8th Avenue in Portland, 97214. Again, the webpage is kboo.fm give. On your mobile device, you can text KBOO to 44321. And of course, you can reach us by mail at 20 Southeast 8th Avenue in Portland, 97214. Thanks to all our listeners on the radio dial and on the web. You can find an archived version of the show later today at kboo.fm slash words and pictures. And be sure to follow us on social media at words and picture. Let's go out with some more music from Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio.